Welcome to Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton, Finn Golding, CIO and CTO at Aviva, and co-author of the book Flow. Welcome to the show. Great. Hi. Nice to be here. No, it's, uh, it's a pr privilege to have you on the show. I saw some of uh, your posts on LinkedIn initially and was intrigued. Here's somebody <laughs> thinking about what's what's past agile. What's what's what, what do we what do we get to after the the agile conversation? Then read your book. Uh, I'm yeah. now delighted to to your the book that you co-authored. <laughs> yeah, I'm now delighted to to have you on the show. And I thought we'd we'd start there with with flow and talk a little bit about the, the genesis of that book and and, and some of its yeah. main messages, and, and we can dive into it. Okay. I mean, um, for it's for me, the book is a, a way of sharing some of the experiences that I've had in my career. I kind of came to this whole world of agile, and I, I know that you've had some people on the show before talking about agile um, in terms from a technology perspective. I just thought some of those uh, ways of working were really quite quite special and interesting, and could be used in a wider context. And as you start to uh, involve more people in these ways of working you start to uncover cultural issues and and perhaps challenges in getting people to to let go of the ways they've done things in the past and uh, i try to unlock that potential and show how fun it can be in this sort of new world so um and what's happened is that i've, I've been involved in digital transformation or transformation or just big projects um and nothing has sort of been more powerful to me than just getting people much more into a social interaction working together um and and freed from some of the old uh, methods and that's kind of where the book came from and and I wrote it with uh, hayden shaughnessy the co-author uh, he visited me in in paddy power i was working in paddy power at the time saw the ways that we were working thought this would really be a great book and so that's how we got together and did it so Right. Okay. And for our international audience, then, so Paddy Power is a big gambling, is that online right? gambling company. Oh, yes. Yeah. Not yeah. a gambler myself, but I'd had this period of about ten to twelve years where I worked all in dot coms and, and bringing those on a journey of scale, and that was one of those businesses I worked at. Um, and it kind of came from my days at lastminute.com, travelocity.com, a number of dot coms that get to that point where they need help to to get to the next level. And that's generally around scaling systems or scaling teams or scaling people to be able to do the big jobs. And yeah, so it was, it was quite good fun there, but we were doing something quite innovative in terms of uh, software releases, you know, 50 a day and stuff like that, which uh, I'd been unheard of. And Hayden's an expert in innovation and working with large companies and found me and brought a bank along to see what we were doing. And the bank were like, hmm, yeah, we do releases maybe twice a year, not so many per day. How do you do it? And that's where the conversation sort of like blossomed. Wow, right. Yeah, because and, and something I hadn't even, I think you mentioned in the book, is it Amazon every 11 seconds? Yeah, and it's probably out of date even now. And there are other companies that are going even faster. And if you read some of the latest uh, DevOps reports, uh, there are companies delivering software much quicker than that. But it's more about getting um, your your products to market quickly. And that was the thing at lastminute.com. It was, you know, if you were second, you'd lost. So it was all about getting out there as fast as possible with new innovation. Right, and lastminute.com again for international listeners or maybe just young listeners was, yeah. <laughs> was a startup. Uh, one of the big sort of poster child startups in the UK scene, right? And um, 
yeah. uh, travel firm for last minute bookings. For yeah, it's true. It was a pivotal moment for me because I'd been working the first part of my career in banking and finance, uh, big companies in different parts of the world as well. In fact, I was working at Visa in San Francisco. I came back to work in a dot com and um, I had to have my suit surgically removed and change the way that I actually interacted with people. It was great for me. I mean, literally, I had developers that didn't wear shoes. And, and if I went to lunch, I'd come back and there'd be two people sitting at my desk. It was that kind of like intensive uh, environment that we worked in and, and great fun. It really was good fun. Right. Um, that was in the centre of London, right? Were you working at the last minute offices in London? Yeah, yeah. But we'd been on a, a, a trail of acquisitions. So there was lots of uh, work to be done across Europe um, with lots of businesses that were bought um, by the organisation and actually integrating them in, um, which was good fun. But yeah, predominantly from the UK. Right. Um, and this this point about the fact that we're we're now developing these these online systems where we're up, updating them so rapidly that's the need for that or perhaps there's a sort of convergent um, phenomenon where we've got this need to be highly responsive in terms of these platforms mm -hmm. and we're changing culture inside companies at the same time is it, is, it, is that at the heart of the book am I right is that let's say that's part of it part of it. Yeah, I'd say that the, the big thing here is to, to look at um, the way that people have been using agile techniques in the past. In fact, it's sometimes seen as agile with a big A, which is like a product or a methodology or, or something that you buy. Um, and the founding fathers of that kind of way of working said, hang on, this is not quite right. What we want to do is get back to being agile with a small A, you know, and not being forced down a particular path. So within the book, we kind of say, using um, visualizations or transparent ways of working, um, getting people to collaborate a lot more, work together. Um, you don't need to follow these rigid methodologies. You can have a kind of framework that shows uh, how to do some of this stuff and actually have some, some fun along the way and inject fun back into the whole process. That's kind of what we've been doing. Right. Which reminds me, so we had Ken, Ken Beck on the show a few back, who, for those who don't know him, he was one of the authors of uh, Extreme Programming, which was one of the early, I suppose, right. um, expressions of these, these ideas associated with Agile and his, his sadness at seeing how it's evolved. Um, yeah, it's a commercial. number of people said the same thing, and it's, it's, it's a shame because, um, you know, it, it certainly is a great way of working. It just kind of got a bit stuck. And... Um, I've been very controversial saying agile is dead and getting out there and doing presentations and being provocative, but it was just to get people to think that we should move on and perhaps um, find a new way of working that um, is much more collaborative and less prescriptive. Right. So you, you've met, so, and this is what you've, you've described in, in the book flow when you and uh, Hayden have described. So you, you mentioned visualization, mentioned injecting fun. What are the other key, key aspects here? Yeah, it's kind of like great social interaction. You know, it's, right. it's trying to, to get away from, um, you know, very uh, hierarchical ways of working in terms of um, organizational structure, et cetera, and get people to see if they can actually... Oh, there's people next door having some fun already. There you go. They probably <laughs> have a visualization right now as I speak. Um, that's the problem with our office, by the way, when you walk around it, it's just really buzzing with people um, standing at walls, you know, and discussing projects, working together. So laughter is a major part of it. But yeah, we talk about what's the best way for leaders to change in terms of being part of the team, not actually 
necessarily on top or driving the team and what's their part to play which is to keep things moving in within the team so it's uh, to keep uh, blockers uh, removed and, and actually um, if there's you know, people required bring them in and try and get a way of, of making sure there's no block blockages or stops in the way that we do things so it's um, when you look at uh, the way that people build systems today or even work in general there's the part where you get you wait for somebody else to help you well, why not have that person in the team? Why not have that part of your group? So try and find a way of doing that. We find leaders can do that. You know, they have the ability to pull in the people that's required at the appropriate times. But again, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a different way of working because a lot of leaders are not used to coming out of their offices and um, being in a, a stand-up uh, situation, a meeting where you're collaborating together and you yourself are picking up actions, you know, not necessarily giving them to everybody, which tends to be the way it works in some companies. Right. And is that, so in terms of your journey from that, that suited banker into these startup environments and, and now what, what you're developing at Aviva, what's what been the biggest changes for you personally in terms of what, how you had to change? Yeah, I think um, as, you, as you go um, from large enterprise to startups, and then you see startups scale, and then you become, you know, you get back into large enterprises again, is how do you um, get some of these uh, ways of working adopted? And that's through, obviously, some um, sort of your history provides a backdrop to why people should do it. But at the same time, it's can you pick a, a lighthouse project, something small enough to show people, look, before we did this, this is what was happening. Now we've improved this and this isn't now where we are and build a kind of community of people that are like-minded to start doing the same sort of things. For instance, in IT, it's kind of normal to put visualizations on the wall and have you know, post-it notes and, and um, show that uh, work items are progressing. It's not so usual in business departments uh, or non-IT, should I say. Um, but now I see them everywhere. So I, you know, I've walked past a wall where people are using it to visualize their work. It's got nothing to do with software development. It's just a way of them saying, right, these are the things we have to do. These are the things we're doing and we can't do everything, so what's the priority? And these are the things we've done, which we're quite proud of. And it starts from there, really. Right. And and so and this idea of the wall, the visual wall, is, is central in the book. And the one, one thought that, that crossed my mind was, well, okay, it's great, we put this, this, the, all of our work on the wall, but is there a risk that some of the same patterns of behavior persist and you know, managers just use it as another tool for control and actually it doesn't achieve the result? I think there's a little bit of that, but I believe there is um, the teams themselves in our, in our situation, you know, agree on the onset of a way of working and uh, we try and have a, position whereby there is no, shall we say, leader, as it were, we're all leaders in a way. Um, you have to be cognizant of the dominating personalities, that's for sure. But as a, as a, as a leader myself, my job is to bring people into the conversation. And uh, these are very bright people I work with. And this is, you know, maybe sometimes these skills are not always that, that, that come to the fore. I have to make sure that everyone gets a voice. But um, using the techniques, what we do is we, we tend to go back right to the customer and start looking at what's the most valuable things that we should be working on. Does, does our work fit the, the people that we serve, which is our customers? So if you're making sure that value from a customer segmentation perspective is correct in the first part, then it comes into the visualization of all the projects. You kind of cut down a lot of, say, 
irritant projects or pet projects or things that shouldn't really be there, which kind of frustrate people. That's what causes some of the friction in the first place, I find. Well, you can see what we're doing is really valuable for customers. I think it energizes people, you know, and sometimes uh, you're right, the leaders do have to back off a little bit and they, they do once they see the collaboration working um, real time. Right. Yeah, that, that, that reminds me in the book, you talk about it, I think with one client, banking client, um, you visualize all of their projects on a massive wall and they could just visualize just how many of these projects were yeah. uh, inappropriate or, or not needed. Yeah, I did it recently as well. And because um, what I tend to do is try and help other companies as well, just to, to use these techniques and kind of stood back and said, wow, we're going to need a bigger wall. You know, it was that kind of thing. And by color coding the actual <coughs> the projects themselves, putting them into a color coordination, which is to say, right, everything that's yellow is a strategic thing that we're doing and everything kind of like red would be uh, infrastructure or regulatory. There are ways of, of visualizing the different types of work you're doing. You can quite quickly see, hmm, we're not really doing much work for the customer. We're doing a lot of work for us internally. And is that the right thing to do? So it allows you to make decisions at a, at a real visual level, which you don't normally see inside big, you know, thick tones of, of project reports, et cetera. All right. Yeah. And, and what the, the other thought brought to mind was that Ed, Ed Sheen and this idea about culture and part of it being your physical architecture and, so, and the rules you have about how you use your physical space. And you talked about how big bags, they'll put this great art on the wall. <laughs> But yeah. the teams use the space, and I'm in those very large organisations, and the wheel and the walls feel beautiful, right? And you would yeah. want to sell it with a you know, post-it. Yeah, <laughs> we have the same thing. We see walls that are, um, you know, that wonderful old brickwork that's um, been preserved because we're trying to get this edgy industrial style office, you know, and post-it notes don't stick them; they fall <laughs> off, you know. Uh, the first thing I do when I join a, a company is I go look for the facilities manager and just say, look, you're going to hate me, but we're going to be covering these walls. And to be honest with you, we've come up with some creative ideas where we use some uh, white plastic that sticks to the wall or we're using special paint that can be wiped down in case you need to. So you kind of get there. But you're right, it is something that takes a bit of getting used to. But We've basically run out of wall space, and now we use um, you know, boards on wheels. We come up with all sorts of creative ideas. I saw one office where they were hanging glass panels between the desks to use those to put their stickies on. Um, it's, I think it's a better way of working, to be honest with you, than being a, an individual sitting you know, on your own and pulled into formal meetings. This is, for me, much more fun. And uh, so I go to maybe four or five stand-up type meetings per day, quite wide range of subjects. I'll also sneak into ones which I'm not invited to just to see how they're getting on, you know, and just give some advice every now and again. I'm sure they don't like it. I, I like to see what's going on. And when I first did this as well, um, uh, CEO was pretty skeptical at one company, and uh, but we found him going around at night looking at all the work that was in progress and actually started taking things off the wall. Well, why are we doing that? And why are we doing that? It's kind of interesting once you do it that way. Right. I, I remember I did it once with a with a with a client, and we put a big uh, roller whiteboard up. And uh, the first few days that we left it up, uh, we started to get graffiti, like <laughs> yeah. abuse, you know, effing consultants and all clothes, and, you know, just just. And we were having to wipe off the graffiti like every morning as a ritual. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Like Richard, get this thing, 
you know, dab. And I was like, no, no, stay with it, stay with it. And after, a, I don't know, a week, the sort of graffiti stopped and, and it helped, helped to open a conversation and some dialogue. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I've never experienced something like that before, but I must admit, I have seen some creative ideas where I didn't think it would work, but um, we had one wall which is all white at Paddy Power, you know, in my gambling days, and actually that wall itself was, no one used it, but then we painted it green, which was the, the kind of color of the company, and everyone started using it. So I don't know, maybe there's something in this, this as well, there's some uh, subliminal or psychological thing to do with color, but I don't know. Right. I've also heard about the, like, if you get creative with your visualizations and use like metaphors that resonate. So I had somebody working with, I think it was Heathrow Airport, and they styled their board as runways. Yeah. Um, because that was obviously a, me- that was a metaphor that, uh, and the, I think the runways represented streams of work, whatever it might be. And that was a metaphor that resonated in the culture, right? So I think there's something about how you visualize as well. Yeah, because we, we don't restrict it to IT types of working. I try and avoid some of the jargon. You can't avoid it. But, you know, for some of the technical people watching this, you know, we tend to use a Kanban technique, which, is, which comes from manufacturing. But, um, uh, but in fact, there are other visualizations that we use to get people started. And that can be um, using a wall just to say thank you to each other. So a thank you wall, the big wall. You come along, you thank somebody for helping you. Um, once, take a picture of that once every couple of weeks, clear it down, start again. It's amazing how a little thing like that, you know, where you've got a bit of gratitude between team members that's visible and other people can see it, causes a, a change in, in the way that teams work. And then we have other walls which are related to um, irritations or frustrations in the workplace. So we, have, we ripped off this idea from Top Gear called the Cool Wall. And we have a wall whereby people put on that, you know, things that they, they're very happy about and things they want us to invest in, et cetera, or things that they're very unhappy about. And again, it doesn't always tend to be technical things. It can be, right, it's really uncool that the showers are cold in the morning. So it's very irritating. So if we fix that, people are a little bit happier. In fact, we had uh, it's, uh, another company and people were really unhappy about the cracked cups. So, you know, you would never get these things um, brought to the fore if you never had these ways of doing it. So we've got new cups. People were much happier. Right. And, more, and, you, and somebody might write something like that, I don't know, in their annual employee survey. But, you know, when you're comment 379 buried in some spreadsheet somewhere, what's the yeah. chances of that? kind of raising up to people's consciousness and getting fixed. But it, yeah. I think by making it a, fi- a fixture in, in the physical space. It, yeah. No, exactly. Like team temperature is something, or team happiness. But some some companies do that. We, we have some teams doing that. So they have a thermometer. They put their little smiley faces on, on where they feel at the moment. And so if you go past and you see, that team doesn't look very happy, you can go and find out why. You know, and it's you're not waiting for a project to start going off course. You know, a month later, to discover they weren't happy because they were they were under resourced or something. So, yeah, you know, there are great things like that. But to your point about making stuff visible, yeah, I did once put into a big portfolio report. You know, when you get to page 52 and you read this message, call this number to claim 500 euros. It was my number. And I sat down with the execs on the Monday morning. So, did everybody read the report? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we take it as read? Yeah, yeah. So you didn't see that page 52. Uh, oh, no, I didn't see that. <laughs> so, so that's why we visualize stuff, because you just don't have the time as an exec anymore to consume all this data and make decisions. You can only look at the, the very small priorities at the top. Right. 
And the question which I know a bunch of people are going to have is like, okay, this is all very well if I'm co-located in a physical space. What about yeah. if we're remote, right? Well, that was, sorry, they, what about if we're remote? What about if we're uh, a remote team? How do we handle it? Yeah, that? I get that all the time. And um, there, I have a couple of answers. I mean, obviously, it's preferable if you're all in the same place. I mean, a lot of these ideas come from startups uh, or you know, an entrepreneur environment where you are all together. You know, it wouldn't be unusual at lastnote.com for the CEO to be testing a release, you know, because you're all, and it's a big company, right? But everybody's like getting ready to get something delivered and it's all hands to the pump. Um, but when you start to work in remote teams, if you can give the remote team end-to-end -end responsibility, so from you know, start to finish, so that they are not dependent on anybody in another group, then you can get the same fluidity. Um, if you're going to have to have a you know, remote team, I try and make it um, two centers max, any more than that, and you can't really do it. And so we have really big screens that we use, um, which are always on, and we're able to have really, really good stand-up meetings with a remote team. But by and large, we try and minimize or eradicate it completely. So just give that remote team the power to go from you know, an idea to production. Um, it's a bit of a leap of faith for some companies, but believe me, you can see the actual cycle and how it actually moves quite quickly when you do that. Right, and that's very different from my experience of, of remote teams and often it's the, it's the low cost center that's remote and so the you know, lower, lower value in quotes activities and maybe the, if people yeah. do it this way, you know, the testing is done there and, um, and, but the architects and maybe some of the key developers are, are, are in another place and you get, it's not, it's, it's rare that that remote team, as you say, it's given full autonomy. It is, it's a difficult thing to do and that is a big cultural shift, I think, if you're going to have those types of teams. Now, in my career, I was lucky enough when uh, lastminute.com was bought by the same company that you know, owned Travelocity, which was Sabre, and they allowed me um, to go and run an offshore center in Argentina. So I did that for three years. So I was on the other end of this, you know, providing the services. And I just discovered the teams that had the autonomy to go from, you know, from product development to, to production were the happiest teams and most productive teams. In fact, they used to do the releases from each other's homes once every Friday or so and have a, a barbecue afterwards, very Argentinian thing to do. And the team camaraderie and spirit was fantastic. The teams where they were one or two people connected to a remote team were less happy and had more mm. issues as they, they weren't part of, a, of that team per se, or they got visited once a year or something. So I was a big champion for making the teams uh, holistic and hybrid teams. And that was way back, um, you know, like 2009, 2010. And that's why I just discovered this DevOps thing, which is you know, development operations coming together in one team. And I thought back then, wow, what if there were more people in this team? So that expression, DevOps, is kind of techie and it's quite de rigueur at the moment. But so we came up with the idea of flow teams. So, well, how can this team flow best? And generally, it's when everybody's together. And so even, even in remote teams, it can be done, but um, they kind of have to give some control back. And that's the big thing is the control element. Yeah, that's what people uh, yeah, bristle against. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little bit. Okay, but I suppose it helped with you as well having somebody very trusted within the company. You went out to Argentina, right? And yeah, that presumably made a difference in terms of the trust. Did it? Yeah, well, in, in reality, the the teams that uh, I was working with 
were very much um, you know, connected to the dot coms that the organization had bought and the fragmented teams were not. They were traditional teams that um, were part of um, you know, the, uh, the larger organization where they were working on some of the older systems. So I, it was just the, um, the ability to do things quickly altogether is easier to, to prove when you're doing digital development. It's a little bit harder when you're doing some of the big mainframe uh, work where you have a need for specialisms. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, and that touches actually on something. You talk about fungible roles. Uh, <laughs> I haven't used, I heard that term used anything other than currency before, but uh, yeah, yeah. Talk, talk about what you mean by fungible. Uh, yeah, well, there's um, there's a bit of a movement going on. I think I'm part of it as well. I'm, I'm being provocative again. I, I call this sort of stuff HR 2.0 or people functions reinvented. But, you know, we have job descriptions and those job descriptions are, can be quite narrow for individuals. And as I say, like at lastminute.com, I saw the CEO testing. Um, I'd see developers that would be perhaps, you know, um, creating databases and I'd see other people um, doing something outside of their job roles. And it always occurred to me, why is it like that? And as you see the world changing where there's no real job for life anymore and people are changing trades, for instance, they have one profession or one particular specialism at university, then they, they learn something else and become proficient in that, or they change again midway through their careers. So it's possible. So I came up with this, this theory, well, why is the job description so limiting? And so can you have um, maybe a specialist skill and a broad skill, or two specialist skills and a broad skill, or three specialist skills and a broad skill? So I came up you know, this kind of idea of having T-shaped, pie-shaped, or cone-shaped was something I'd seen. I thought, this is great. And it just said to me that people could be much more fungible if you allow them to be. Because quite often you get, well, I'm not doing that, or I can't do this because that person's not here to do it for me. And some of our processes and methods have actually restricted us to be able to do things um, because of you know, delineation of responsibility or something that's grown up over the years because one person did something bad, everybody else has to suffer for that, you know. So I'm kind of becoming a bit of a champion for how can we get broader, more meaningful, rich roles. And um, it's not easy because, you know, think about everything that's based upon it, um, compensations based upon it, you know, promotions, etc. I think over time, some of these things will, will start to be challenged and we'll start to move back towards teams rather than total individual focus. But, okay, so there's a paradox there because you're saying it's about the team, but then you also want to say, actually, this individual can do anything. So, yeah, generally I'd see, see it doing it for the team. So mm -hmm. if I still had my coding skills, I would love to do that for the team if they were under pressure but probably not allowed to. Um, and I kind of say, why, you know? Um, or are there people in the team that can help each other out? And in, in a little way, in DevOps, they kind of do that. You know, the, the developers will help the operations staff under pressure and, and vice versa. It's just saying, can we do that on a broader level? And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of utopia. It's a great, you know, vision to have. But um, I think by being provocative around this, people are starting to say, maybe there's something in here about broadening roles and making them more fun. Right. Reminds me a bit, have you done any of the reading on Valve? No, I haven't, no. So that's no. Valve is a gaming company, uh, and uh, they've got the, the famous Valve handbook, and the, that they come from that philosophy as well, right? 
you're not you're not given a formal job title. There is no um, the only time they use job titles apparently, so it's, the book says, is when they need to face off to the market, right? And they, they create a role to make themselves understandable to the to customers or to the market. But internally, that, that's not yeah. currency. And and the way that they're compensated is based on a peer review of their contribution to the team or to the company. Okay. Um, didn't quite have that at lastme.com, but we did have a situation where you could, you could have whatever job description you wanted or a title that you wanted. So we had somebody in charge of innovation. She was great. And her title was mother of innovation, which I thought was a great thing. So to have mother of innovation on your, on your business card certainly made people think, hmm, what's this company all about? But uh, yeah, there are some of those roles. Um, I'd like to just see that we, we are just a little bit more broader and, and not so narrow, just to help out, I say, cover the edges between different people in the team. Mm. Yeah, so, but I, as my, my, my mind's turning here as well, as I think about, you know, mother innovation, and that's very much allowing the individual to express themselves fully and give themselves yeah. an identity that, that, that most best fits. Yeah. And we're also talking about having team identities yeah. and making them both important, right? Is it? Yeah. yeah, I think that where we're finding where the team gathers inspiration, has fun, is is in, in their purpose and what they're actually doing. So if they're, if they're doing stuff for customers and they're interacting really with customers, you know, bringing customers in off the street to meet with the teams um, and you see that direct impact, um, it makes it much more fun. Some organizations allow the teams to share in the profit and loss of the particular thing they're working on, which is another, another way of working or a gamification teams against teams. I'm not so sure about that, but you know, there are, there are different ways of, of, of inspiring the teams. But I always talk to people that sometimes are a little bit, um, you know, skeptical of some of the things I talk about. So, well, when was the last time you came to work and, and were happy that you really felt energized? You know, you came in the door and went, fantastic. I'm really looking forward to today. Or did you just come and think, oh, my God, I can't wait till Friday, you know? And that's the thing, I think, when you work in a, in a, in a great environment where, you have some of these techniques that you can you can address some of that. Not everything, but you can address quite a lot of it. Right. Yeah, this is fascinating because the last guy I interviewed, a guy called Jack Hubbard, I mentioned before we came on, I interviewed him from his uh, treehouse out in the Alps in France, and uh, his uh, he's. His, his company, Propellernet, he's developed something called the Dream Incubator or the Dream Machine, where individuals will say what their dream is, what, what, do, they, what do they want to become, what do they want to do in the world. Um, and it's not necessarily within the company, it's just what they want to do in the world. And then the company will see how they can facilitate that. And if they can facilitate that within the company, great. And if not, then they may well help them do that outside of the company. And a couple of product ideas have emerged out of that process, which have become extremely profitable for the company. So, um, I love that. That's, I mean, that's great. I think where the challenge comes is trying to do some of this stuff within a large enterprise. So, you know, the challenge for me um, in, in smaller companies was, was not as great because there's a lot of people saying, well, yeah, we already do some of this, or, you know, let me show you what I've been doing. Uh, in large companies, it's starting to, to, to get into the fabric because of the need to um, be aware of disruption or, in fact, in our organization, our CEO talks about disrupting ourselves, you know, uh, collaborating with, with startups or, or accelerating them, um, bringing them into our value chain, that kind of stuff. 
and I find all that really quite heartening, you know, whereas uh, um, at some point, if you are a large stuffy organization that don't adopt some of the techniques or look outside, you know, you're exploiting your current business model. At some point, you're going to be, you know, wiped out if you're not careful. So it's a different driver, but it's, uh, it is interesting. Right. One of the things you talked about was um, tiger teams versus flow teams, right? Um, and uh, I thought that was right. There's a diagram in the book, and I thought that was just interesting to paint a picture of the, of the difference in terms of what you're talking about with flow. Could you touch on it's that? Kind of, it's, it's kind of evolving as well, whereas, you know, sometimes putting teams together just to fix something, you know, it can work, you know, that's something that the organization mm -hmm. do. Uh, but what I'm finding with flow teams is is that bringing in more roles from different parts of the organization, making it a little bit more persistent in the way that it works because that persistency is something that you, um, you don't always get. You kind of get teams that are, are you know, formed, broken up, put back together again, you know, um, and try and prevent some of that. So I've seen in the DevOps world, they're talking about DevOps 2.0, which is to include um, say, for instance, uh, business analysis or security or other roles. Um, we were already thinking about this from a flow perspective quite some time ago. And um, teams that are set up where there's no inefficient handoffs are, are far happier and more productive than the ones that have to wait for somebody else to do something for them. Right. Um, and the, the other thing, so it's this idea of incorporating a broader scope to allow them to become more autonomous and, and happier. And we know that, right? I mean, there's quite a lot of psychological research that suggests that the, the greater to which the greatest degree to which we're in charge of our own destiny and actions, the, the happier we are. Um, yeah. but you also talk about this this idea of uncertainty orientation versus orientation towards goals. And could you expand on that a little bit? Because that, that Yes, I, I think there's um, I think Hayden puts this really well. So it's sometimes you just need a compass, you know, to, to go in a certain direction, not necessarily um, this kind of prescribed set of goals and objectives. I mean, they are important, but the more narrow they are, the more you're likely to go down a particular path and maybe um, start delivering something way too early for it being, you know, for it to be valuable, shall we say, or you're actually creating something that nobody wants. So the theory being that if you're a little bit more comfortable with some ambiguity, if you're comfortable with um, uh, test and learn and trying some stuff out, if you're comfortable with, the, as you say, with the team coming up with ideas and say, well, let's go with it, rather than actually say, well, that's not in our objectives, that's not in our goals, and, and pushing it to one side, you're stifling innovation somewhat. So we are big fans of the kind of test learn techniques rather than you know um, building stuff before you start to, to learn from it. And um, one of the things we've been looking at is is even even faster, um, you know, getting to market rather than minimal viable products. Lots of people talk about MVP has become quite famous, right? We're thinking in terms of what's the the minimal thing that you can sustain in terms of delivery to get that feedback to see what it is, and that can sometimes just be a, even simpler than a prototype. It could even just be a picture, you know, or an idea or something. And so it's trying to bring that stuff to the fore. Um, and therefore, for us, it's trying to get teams, yeah, that, that are more empowered and less constrained. And for us, sometimes to be able to do something that's probably not you know, written on the tinter, we say. Right. Yeah. I like, this. I, I, like that. I, I like that metaphor of using a compass and 
I've yeah, it's great. I can't, I can't use that. That's, I must admit, he used that. <laughs> I, I've stolen it now, but I'll, I'll use it from now on. But it's what we're finding in some of these methodologies is they're very prescript, you know, prescriptive. They take you down a certain way of working. Um, and we all, you know, we see people with roles that are appropriate to that methodology, et cetera. And our idea was to be, well, can we just be a bit more fluid? Can we actually have a more of a, a framework rather than a, a true methodology, more of a philosophy of a way of working. Now, some people find that a bit too woolly, and some people even challenge me to say frameworks are too rigid, you know, it should be, should be wider than that. But it's having a, a customer innovation mindset that works with a, a very efficient delivery mindset. And those are the things that we've been homing in on in, in the book. In fact, as we wrote the first book, we then wrote a second book, because we had so much material and so many new ways of, of working and, and ideas and then now working on another one. So it's just, it's constantly changing. Whereas we found that some of these other ways of working are written in stone and you follow them, you know, there are certain um, versions that you must be compliant with. And we're thinking this is all nuts, you know, just, just like use some of the techniques, empower people um, and have some fun. Right, it reminds me of what Dan North said on the on the podcast, that I think the Scrum handbook is they've changed one word in 20 years or something. <laughs> It might be a little bit harsh, I think, but there is certainly, there's certainly, um, we're trying to get them to come on this journey with us, you know, that those foundations, those groups, um, and to, to let go of the comfort blanket a little bit. And because once you move some of these techniques, it's like, as you say, scrum and technical agility into a wider business agility world, your, your, your market, you know, it's even bigger. It's, it's, it's massive. In terms of organizations wanting to go on this journey and for us it's um like how do we teach people some of the skills enough for them to be able to be effective in their organizations but once you start to use these things you, you kind of find it much more natural you know than following a guidebook that somebody else wrote 10 years ago which probably is not so appropriate for today's business world so i'm a big fan of business agility um but to your point i think we've kind of been talking about it in a in a way is that it's this, the big cultural transformation that's required in companies to give people freedom to do this, or you know, it's not so much empowerment anymore. You know, that's that's been probably worn out word. You know, in fact, that sometimes is very negative. Yeah, sure, I'm going to empower you to deliver this particular product. If it screws up, well, then you know, goodbye, thanks. You know, that's not so powerful at all. But uh, yeah, just giving people the ability to have their voices heard and get some time to test some of these ideas in, in, in the real world. Right. You, you certainly in, in, in Flow, you, you dedicated an entire section to leadership and First Human, a lot of our mission is around developing leadership in the workplace. What's your take on the, the key aspects of leadership for Flow? What, yeah, um, it keeps modifying, I must say. So, um, you know, for me, I kind of think the leaders need to get out of the way sometimes, you know, and just really remove the blockages and irritants that teams face. Um, there's a movement towards servant leadership so that the, the leader is serving the entire team. So turning that triangle of hierarchy the other way around. Um, I'm feeling it's more that the leader is is part of the team and has a certain set of skills which might be appropriate for um, making the team successful. So it's kind of a change in the way that it works. So 
Um, I'm finding I spend most of my time coaching or mentoring, sometimes counseling, you know, it's, it's these are skills that I think are not appropriately used by many leaders or managers. In fact, they, they get them quite late. Some people become leaders or managers just because they've got to a certain level. You know, I'm, I'm an IT guy. I love technology and I think I only went up the tree because it was a way of escalating up and, and getting more money. You know, I think these days there's, there's much more value associated with people that bring some of those skills, which are not necessarily managing a team of hundred, but it's, it's influencing a team of thousands, you know, and that's for me is even more powerful leadership. So I think, yeah, we've been talking about how to reinvent all of that, you know, and get away from some of the command and control structures, which tend to suck, the energy of the company to the top of the pyramid and not push that energy out to customers. So um, that's hard. Let me tell you, that really is hard. That's, you can only do that, I think, potentially by example, where you've got you know, the, the feedback from teams and the, what you're producing is valuable to the organization as well. But yeah, leadership is um, it's coming under pressure. I think it needs to change. Right. And so when you say it's hard, this pushing of the energy towards the, the customer, that is that a part that's hard? No, it's getting the leaders to change to these ways of working, you know, to, to become um, more collaborative themselves, to join the stand-ups, to get out of formal meetings, to get away from the, you know, the heavy tome of, of information that's required, you know, these reports, et cetera, that people don't always read. Um, and if I found it quite inspirational. Some teams now, even even from a risk management point of view, we've got some teams that, you know, their record of this particular meeting is a photograph of a wall, which I just think is just brilliant. You know, that for me is like highly nimble. But, you know, there are others saying, hang on, there's an appropriate audit trail or whatever. You know, there's, there's always somebody that's saying, is this the right way of doing this? We've always done it another way and it sh we should always do it that way. And I think the more progressive leaders are challenging that and saying, no, I think this is the right way to go um, and bringing the team on that journey with us. But it's, it's that cultural thing within an organization. And, um, and I'm seeing it in a lot of places where it is, it is definitely changing. People are starting to question the old paradise. And when you find yourself in that position, let's take the example you just used of somebody demanding an audit trail. What, what, what do you rely on to, to manage um, that conversation? bit of charm you know a little bit of humor it's it's it is that no, it's, it's being very open and listening to what the concerns are and saying let's try this let's try a different way of doing this um let's see if we can um prove that it's a it, it's a, an easier way of working and, and generally you know it is sometimes i'm wrong and that's that's okay so we'll have to do it a different way yeah, we are highly regulated business and, and lots of the businesses I've worked in have been highly regulated. So you kind of have to do some things in a certain way. But um, the, I think it was the chief operating officer of Ryanair once said to me, you know, you should, what you should do is really comply with the regulations which make sense and really challenge the ones that don't because they're the ones that um, have been around for a long time and people can't even remember why they're there and they are not in the customer's best interest at times. And that's what you have to be thinking about. Right. And do you have any examples of where you've tried that and, and failed? You know, you've challenged and, and it's gone wrong and you've learned something. I'm, I'm not going to share that with you. <laughs> I've tried a few things. Like I've tried to change PMOs, project management offices, to call them value management offices, you know, to get them to focus on value. They don't like that at all. Um, I've tried to change people's job descriptions, you know, from, say, Scrum Master to something else, and that, that's gone down badly. 
or um, bringing teams together into a DevOps structure, you know, when you start to um, you know, touch the, the things that people hold dear, what I've learned through my career is that that requires much more consultation, collaboration, and um, kind of co-design, you know. So if you're the leader saying, great news, we're going to abolish all your job descriptions, they kind of see their value in the marketplace places completely gone. So it's not a great thing. So you have to, but to your point, maybe there's, um, a name you have externally and what you have internally are different things, you know, so there's probably a way around it, but yeah, I'm, I'm quite often I've been quite close to having challenged um, challenges for me go completely wrong. Um, and um, I think I'm big enough to accept that, you know, so I've got at the point in my career where it's like, okay, um, sometimes I can be wrong. Yeah. And I do, I do find having played that role of change agent myself is that, for me at least it sort of tended to come with the territory where I, I've pushed for it's made a suggestion and then had my fingers burnt. You, you mentioned that praise wall I had the situation with the client I think I've shared this on the show before where I um I suggested it's something very similar right a wall where people put praise cards praise property yeah. and tried it a few times and sort of pushed and pushed and then tried it in this one stand up and she said F off with you be shit right in front of the rest <laughs> <laughs> Slap her. And, yeah. uh, and I learned that, you know, I hadn't to your I hadn't listened, you know, I hadn't I hadn't really understood where she was at. Yeah. And as a result of that, um, you know, misjudged the situation and um that idea eventually came back as a, in a very British way. We had this sort of post box where we could put our praise into a post box, and then it oh, was nice. So, so the it's a start, isn't it? Though sometimes it's a start. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think sometimes you have to go and try a little bit of this, or sometimes you say, look, let's give it a go for a little while and see what happens. But yeah, it, it's the complexity of people and how you un un unlock their potential has always been one of those things that's fascinated me and how to work alongside. But I do find that the, the visualization and transparency way of working is, is far more successful than the old fashioned negotiating across the table. You know, or arm wrestling around a certain things. You know, uh, maybe you're you're arguing something because of your position, which is not great. We should be arguing about something because it's a value to to the team or the way of working. Mm -hmm. so, a different way of thinking about it, but yeah, it is um, it is one of those things because you do you, if you see the book, we do have the 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 title that includes the word maverick, and that sometimes I get I get called that, um, which is can be. A double-edged thing can be good and bad, you know, because um, some people don't like the status quo being challenged, you know. Um, I kind of like it. Maybe I'm at the point in my career where that works for me, but maybe if I was younger, I'd probably find it more difficult. But part of it's having the, you know, actually so having the sort of like um, the will and um, the and the gumption to try this stuff, you know. And uh, and I would never go back. I mean, I, I just prefer this way of working. It's for me, it's great. Like my, for instance, my leadership meeting is 15 minutes per day. So that's it. That's all we do. We don't have monthly meetings. We don't have big, you know, reports that any, no one reads. We don't listen to a diatribe of someone talking about something that you know is great to them, but is not maybe relevant to everybody else. It's very focused. It's very like, what are we doing? What's done? What's next to be done? Um, and it's it's very much in the moment, and it's it's based around you know, people and our our innovation, our delivery, all the, the key things that we have to do as a group. And I actually find that really good fun. 
Wow. Yeah, that's uh, I can I can imagine how liberating that is, and, and all that all that goes all the stage management that goes into those monthly meetings. Right? Yeah, we don't have any of that. This is all post-it notes. It's quite an ugly looking board. Actually, I shared it with someone the other day. Some I got a friend who's moved to Australia asked me to send a picture, which I did. Take and see how it works. Um, but that's uh, yeah. We don't need the airs and graces and the fancy fonts and binded folders and all that kind of stuff. That's that's really really inefficient way of working. I see your point around change. You know, it's like, I think that's one of the criticisms I've had in the past is I love change. I mean, I, I, I tend to um, come to the office a different route every day. I try and find a different way of walking to the office every day. I just think something about change for me is brilliant. But then there are a lot of people that don't like it. So it's how do you get them on the same journey as you? That, that's one of the biggest challenges. And sometimes you have to be a little bit more patient. Patience, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a big, big skill in the army of the, the change agents. Yeah. It is, yeah. I, th I find that as well. Um, but also, um, once you do get people um, into this way of working, you then have another ambassador who then teaches somebody else, and then it becomes kind of, you know, electric. It goes viral. Yeah, no, I've experienced that. You, you reach some kind of a tipping point where enough influential people buy it right yeah and in fact they start using it themselves or you know they you know i'll i'll go past um a team and they've, they've created a new wall where the hell did that come from i'd never seen that before or a new variant of one of the walls that we have um so one i saw the other day has a history of all the things that have blocked that team in the past on the wall so that new team members can learn these are the things that can actually trip you up or stop you I've never seen that before, you know, and, and had all of these solutions associated with it. So that'll probably be coming to a book near you quite soon, that visualization, um, living vicariously of other people's skills. But it's great to see that that, that kind of thing is done like that. And um, even like you talked about staff satisfaction, even that team that's responsible for working with all the other teams um, visualize all the initiatives that come from the surveys and focus the teams to prioritize on that uh, in a visual way. It's like brilliant. I mean, that, that was never designed or you know came up by by me. It was just people thought this is a good way of doing it. We've seen those other guys doing it. You know, mm. is there ever a time when you you find that you you found that you couldn't visualize. Like I had an ex example where we, we were able to put a lot of work up on the wall, but when it came to org structure and we were starting to look at role definitions and so on, so that was something, oh no, you know, we, we could put everything else on the wall, but that's a bit too sensitive. Did you ever encounter anything like that? Yeah, I mean, um, you have to be sensitive, I guess. I mean, we do on on some of our walls have stuff, like if I sit on the wall right now, there is a ticket that says, org structure because we're, we're, we're making some changes to the way that we're operating to make us more efficient. Um, so it's not hidden away. People can see it. But um, there are techniques you can use. I mean, you can, um, you can use project names, you know, if you want to. If, and we did that quite frequently um, in a previous life where we had a new product that we're developing and launching. We didn't want to call it what it was. So we used a different name for it. So, and also, um, on the you know the posters you put on the walls, we, we use, mostly use um, reusable cards and becoming more like um, popular now. But um, you can put the sensitive information on the back, so you can't see that. So now that's really to stop visitors seeing what's what's on your walls. So they see the front, they're not allowed to look at the back. But I think if you can't really um, uh, make things as transparent, you know, 100%. 
it's a bit of a shame, really. I know, I know there are some things that's that's for sure, but it should be really minimal. You know, it should be stuff that's um, that's really quite you know sensitive. Um, but try not to do that at all. And I'm I'm always willing to answer questions if people see stuff on my wall. I'll happily tell them what it is. You know, it's not an issue for me. But it is a challenge for some teams, and so we're just trying to find different ways around that. Right, right. The other thing you mentioned when you talked about leadership was um, this idea of, a, of a being possibility oriented and versus probability oriented. And well, yeah, what expand on that? Well, that's a difficult one to 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 talk about. I mean, are you are you looking at the future, or are you actually obsessing over things that might go wrong? You know, and that tends to be. Um, part of the mindsets and therefore um, trying to get people to be more on the positive side than the negative side. And that, I, mean, I know you need people that are going to say, hang on, we shouldn't go down that route. We shouldn't do that. You know, but it's a lot of the great innovative ideas or products, you know, they, they didn't come from overanalyzing what could go wrong. They just went out and started testing and trying to see how things would work or they pivoted really quickly which is like, okay, can we, can we take this and, and take it in a different direction? What's, what is the, what's possible with what we've got? For instance, I don't know, do you use Slack at all? Or um, a lot of people use Slack for messaging. It's quite popular, you know, within software engineering, but it's also used a lot by teams to collaborate. You know, it started life as, you know, as the, the chat um, mechanism between online gamers. So online gamers used to use this in San Francisco, the IRC chat, as people would know it. And, they actually pivoted it to this messaging platform, which is now yeah. a big business, which is now, I think it's probably going to be IPO'd soon and make gazillions. But it just came from one particular. And if they'd gone off down the route of, right, we're going to create this, you know, um, one thing and stick with it, it probably would never have gone anywhere, you know. So I just kind of find that that I, that way of working fascinating for me. Yeah. Yeah, because some guy in that, because I, I understand it was, a, it was an internal tool, right, in this company, and some guy was like, well, hang on. Why don't yeah. we make this the product? Yeah, this is popular. Why yeah, so that possibility orientation. Exactly. And uh, therefore, there's a lot of things like that where you can tweak something or you know, not constrain your thinking by what could go wrong and um, what could be uh, a thing that holds you back. Mm. And why do you think we don't, you know, because I'm just relating again to this this guy I mentioned, uh, CEO of Propellinet, and, and he's really had that become part of the culture and why do you think so many companies resist that being central to the culture? I don't know. I, I can't speak for a lot of experience. I've worked in lots of companies where, you know, has been a collaborative, innovative type of way of working. You know, sometimes you get companies that set up an innovation team and it doesn't always work because it's, it's out of context or it's, it's kind of, it's, it's to be seen to be doing it on a, on a you know, maybe a report that goes to the, the city or something. But when it's part of your culture, when it's something that you do all the time, um, when it's the way that you start thinking about um, a particular product you're going to build or a project you're going to do, if you start with the innovative mindset and what is possible, then you'll get a better outcome at the end of the day. We're always obsessed with value. What's the most valuable things to do? Um, but you can't teach people to be innovative. They, that, we, that happened once in a, in a large financial institution I worked at. You'd have to guess which one it was many years ago. When we went on innovation training, I could not stop laughing. I mean, I couldn't. I, how can you teach me to be innovative? It's impossible, you know. But there is certainly a way of, of 
people who are working together to spark off each other and start to think about how to do things in a different way. And the visualizations really help with that. Um, and there's a number of organizations I've seen that can help quite senior teams go on this journey. But you tend to have a lot of people saying, mm, yeah, mm, I don't think about, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought, you know, all the different blockages come up. Some are valid, but it kind of, I think it drags everything down in a way. So for me, it's not so um, productive when that happens. Yeah. Personally as well, I think a part of it is this sort of this busyness obsession, right? And um, I think a lot of the, the companies where I think this compensation flourishes to a great degree actually give people space. Mm. So this other company I you know, mentioned, they, they'll give people a day a week or they'll give people space to develop their ideas. And from what I understand of the Google culture, that's also certainly was true. In, yeah, I don't know whether they... I don't know if they do it anymore, and maybe it's, it's moved on since then, but there is something what we use in the, the, the sort of like technique for software development um, using this Kanban method that we have, and we're able to limit the work in progress that's attributed to an individual. So we kind of say, right, an individual can only do one thing at a time, so let's not overload them with lots of things with their context switching. So I'm thinking about this the other day. Can we take that concept on a wider level? not just an individual developer with one task that we're saying, well, we, we recognize it's best for you to stay focused on one thing, build it, move on to the next thing. So we'll limit what we're going to give you. Um, can we do that at the, the, the value management end, the customer innovation end? Can we just say, like, we're going to go after two or three things, instead of a hundred things? And, um, or once we get to a level of projects which are in our portfolio, should we really be doing, like, the five most valuable things rather than the 500 things that are on our massive wall that we've just visualized for everybody. And then using that 80-20 rule, you know, that um, you know, really 80% of the customers who use 20% of the functionality we build. So let's focus on that bit. Let's not build everything. And that tends to be what happens in, um, in large organizations that have lots of people and their job is to deliver stuff. So they deliver stuff and a lot of it. So. I like this idea of limiting things in the pipeline, but I'm not sure everyone's ready for that yet, but we'll see. Right. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a really important part of um, having that space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do need time to think. And in fact, with some of our teams, that's why you see the ping pong tables and the foosball, you know, um, you might think that's crazy, but, um, if you've got a very intensive job where you're using your brain matter for, you know, eight hours, that you, you do need a little time to, to disconnect. And um, one of our teams here has a, a Scrabble wall. So they, they play Scrabble against each other. It's, uh, so it's, it's a break from the coding, but it's challenging each other. It's not just developers either that use that technique. But, you know, I kind of think of ways that can keep you fresh and keep you, keep you moving along. And sometimes you just kind of get stuck, you know, Perhaps you had an idea during the day and you've had this eureka moment when you go home. It's because you've just relaxed a little bit, you know? So that's why I'm a crazy runner. I get a lot of my ideas when I'm out running. So that gives me the, I sometimes have to stop and take a note. You know, I need to find a better way of taking notes so I don't have to stop running. But those, your inspiration comes when you disconnect, say, from the daily grind. Right. Yeah. And that's around up for those, yeah, for those listening, you're in Dublin, right? So you yeah. do you in Dublin itself and run around Dublin? Yeah. 
live in the centre of Dublin, been here for oh, wow. quite a number of years. Um, it's uh, probably the, the biggest village um, in Europe. It's that kind of feel about it, you know, it's a great place. Um, and uh, no, really enjoy it. It's a great place to work. Yeah, I've been there once and I, I loved it. Um, yeah. Okay, I know you're potentially getting thrown out of your, your room, right? At half past. Yeah, yes, we don't, no offices here. So I'm just using a nice, it's a nice meeting room actually. I thought the lights would have gone off by now, but I've obviously I've been doing enough expressive stuff to keep them on. Right. Is, um, but yeah, it's uh, the, uh, for me, it's, uh, the day goes on. So it'll be another set of uh, stand-up meetings, um, but a bit of fun as well that's associated with that. I wanted to touch on just two two last points before you potentially uh, get, get sure. taken from the room. One was, um, which I thought was interesting, and again touches a little bit on our perspective within within first human around around leadership and management, and that was this idea of allowing emotions to flow. Yeah, could you you talk a bit about about that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 we don't tend to do that, do we? With that that sort of like. Uh, the sensitive side of ourselves is not something that we bring to the workplace too often unless we're at an extreme of anger or sadness and like your example of putting the thank yous in a box so it's like that's very as you say the very british thing you know and um and I, I read something the other day about you know when was the last time you cried in the office or something it's probably something that you don't normally do um so we tend to have a lot of um, the emotional side tends to be more of the anger, the aggression, the command control type stuff. And we, really, we just have to kind of stop that, in my view, and try and get to a point where the emotions we use are much more around you know, uh, humor, fun. Uh, humor is probably not emotional, but fun that, that's caused by things like that, by great social interaction, you know, people working together and having some fun. Even, I, I had a very difficult meeting the other day, had everybody together, and I just started saying, but there'll be brownie points for great examples of collaboration in this meeting, you know, and just a little fun thing like that, set the meeting off in the right way. And we tend to not do that, I think, in business. We tend to come up from a confrontational, you know, um, hierarchical way. And that creates, causes a lot of issues and around, um, I, in fact, this, what we're probably not addressing that much in business these days is, um, is people's mental health in, in the workplace. And I, I think you'll see more of that coming out in the future as we get more and more comfortable about talking things like about these, these sort of things, which do come around because of the extreme pressures or the ways that some organizations work. Right. I've answered your question, but it's... Yeah, you know, no, 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 I like, I like, that, I like that, pers that perspective. It's like, it sounds to me like you're coming at it from a place of orientation, you know, what, how do we sort of nudge? I know you don't like the, the nudge as in nudge theory, but you know, how do we orient more towards fun and, and possibility and, and, and less towards aggression and, and yeah. power seeking behavior? Is that would that be right? Yeah, I think I mean, I, I, I'm responsible for um, inclusion and diversity here in Ireland, and that's not just about those, you know, the, the obvious things around inclusion and diversity can be an inclusion of, the, of people's different ways of, of thinking and working. And so I'm, I'm always thinking about how to make that a more comfortable place for people to work. So they, it brings out the best in them, you know. So you quite often see people that are very, very quiet. And how do you to take that introvert out and not make them feel really bad, to make them feel very comfortable to, to share? And... Um, uh, a great example is uh, my wife, she's a scrum master, believe it or not, in a, in, a, in, a, in a large bank. 
And she decided with her team to get better integration that every Friday they should wear the same color. There's one person that hadn't spoken in the team for almost uh, a year until she joined. He said, we're all going to wear yellow. And everybody looked like, what? And all of a sudden, this person wanted to wear yellow and is now the chief color picker, you know, every week. And I think that's just fantastic, you know. And that's got nothing to do with hierarchy. It's got nothing to do with uh, anything other than having a team-based idea. Right. Well, that reminds me of what, I don't know if you've ever used the Lego serious play techniques. No, no, I know of them, but I've never done it. No. Right. Now I was working with a team and we had a particular team member who just wouldn't engage with anything. You know, however, however we tried to make it fun, you know, she, she just, um, just resisted engaging. And in this exercise, you know, she, she, we, we had a, two phases where first we created individual models and then we amalgamated the models to build a vision of what we wanted to build them. She came alive. She absolutely came alive in that exercise, you know, and she was such an integral part of the creative process. And um, for her, clearly, there was something about working with her hands and uh, and working with with Lego, perhaps particularly, that just just completely shifted uh, her orientation and, and her contribution to the team. Yeah, fantastic. So I think so. Maybe what we're pointing to here is something about thinking creatively around the engagement itself. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I went to a meetup the other day, which was around service design and um, user experience design, and the way that people are using those techniques outside of technology, but just in the in the general, um, uh, like inside the city, for instance, in in terms of things that they're up to. But I was fascinated by one of the speakers who teaches visual facilitation. So you've probably been to maybe a conference where someone's drawing the conference. You know, it's probably quite popular these days. But using that technique to run large meetings and without having to be an artist yourself, teaching you some of the ways of pulling the key points out of what people are discussing, drawing it in a visual way. And you can take even the contentious thing and, and draw it in a fun way so that it takes the sting out of it, you know. And so I'm really fascinated by this. And one of the things they've done in Dublin, for instance, in terms of that, visualization and changing behaviors is that we have these boxes you know, that control the traffic lights these green boxes everywhere you, you may have seen them and they've started painting them and since they've started painting them with art people have stopped putting graffiti on them and to prove their point they turned one back to gray and graffiti was all back on it again then they changed it back to art and there was no graffiti uh, there's something about visualization that i haven't fully tapped into yet but i'm going to and maybe that will be Hayden and I's next book <laughs> around this. It's almost like we're, we're rediscovering it, right? As a, I mean, it's like we've we've had it we've had it as this specialised activity that you know, artists do, right? And all the rest of us kind of can't do it, or we think we can't do it. Yeah. And uh, it, it, there's some something happening, right, where it seems to be coming. You're going to see visual facilitation going to be a, it's going to be really big in the future. I really think it will be. Mm. And just and perhaps just the use of art, you know, use of art in business, perhaps. Yeah, broadly. And I already, I already do. I'm the one that takes the pen and draws the value stream, which is kind of like very techy, you know, or very or agile. But I didn't think about drawing, you know, an angry boss with steam coming out of their ears about a particular topic, and then putting what those things are. I'm sure that really does take the sting out of some of these these kind of aggressive sessions that you might have, but. Not to say that my boss has got steam coming out of their ears, and if he's watching this, uh, then honestly, I, wouldn't, I didn't mean you. Right. I, I did it. I, 
facilitated a retrospective once. I know you've got your views about retrospectives in the book, but um, so this is just a meeting where, um, yeah, a team for those who are not familiar, they come together and just talk, and talk through what's working and what isn't in the team. And uh, we, we did it with Lego again, and the Scrum Master created a, a model of a, of, a, of a horse. He put a horse in the middle of the model, and then he had the strings coming off the horse, and, um, and he was dragging right, these people and these, these blocks. And when it was his turn time to share the model, he said, well, this has been my experience of the last two weeks. I've been you know, just pulling the whole team. And through using, but expressing yourself with the model, this, this, this guy was not somebody who was great to express his But by, as you say, just taking this thing out there, by being, creating that little bit of separation and expressing it through a model, he was able to share some of his emotional content Mm. And suddenly the whole team could see it, right? They could, and they, and they kind of knew the truth of it, right? In a way that wouldn't have happened if it had just written it on a sticky. Yeah, yeah. And now they're all in the flow, as we would say. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. And one final question. Let's, let's yeah. hope you don't you, you, you keep the room. Um, something I ask regularly to my guests um, to you, what does, it, what does it mean to be human? me um that's a really really broad question to ask um for me it's about belonging i think i learned that within um within argentina where i went there and in the office in the morning you you know everyone kisses each other men as well kiss each other and you're then welcomed into a family situation um and you're made to feel part of that you have a value that you have to that particular family and that's why I've got an Argentinian wife by the way so and our lives are around how we interact with each other and I kind of bring a little bit of that into the office you know um, making people feel that they belong and that for me is being human fantastic beautiful response okay thank you so much Ben for your time um, it's been brilliant conversation and you really brought the book to life um, for people who want to check out more what if they search for flow on amazon oh, yeah we have a website which is flow-academy.org or it's on amazon but um uh, and people can reach out to me on linkedin or twitter I, I try and give advice or comments or whatever um because i do think there's more to be done to bring some of these ideas out and um, and to get them used in more situations Awesome. Brilliant. Well, I commend you for, the, for that work. Okay. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.